afternoon. I'm Ben Davis, the 2020-2021 postdoctoral fellow in ethics at the University of Toronto Center for Ethics. Thanks to the center for inviting me to present a talk about ethics and COVID-19. I've been following the series of talks and I've been impressed by recent presentations that, for instance, are critical of racialized policing and that address distinctions between isolation and solitude. So it's a pleasure to be part of this robust series. Let's begin. It's Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020. I don't know about you, but I found it increasingly difficult to think lately. I'm talking less about COVID-19 and more about the murder of George Floyd, as well as Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDay, David Dungay, Ayad Halak, and so many others. It is especially discombobulating when the National Guard is in the streets in increasingly more states, first in 10 states, then in 21, then in 23, as of yesterday, Tuesday. In Missouri, where I am now, on Saturday, the governor declared a state of emergency and activated the National Guard. In St. Louis, on Monday, I saw Humvees on the street downtown as protesters gathered around what is called, ironically, or perhaps now symbolically, the Justice Center. I told my partner that it's at least the National Guard and not yet the military turning on its citizens, exercising their constitutional rights. And she said with characteristic insight, that's a distinction you hold to deceive yourself. And on Monday, over 700 soldiers of the 82nd Airborne armed with fixed bayonets were moved to Washington, DC. In Minnesota, where I am from, the US Customs and Border Protection has been flying a predator drone over Minneapolis and the National Guard has fired paint canisters at people simply looking out from their porches. In both states, as I speak, there is a curfew, phones resounding automatically at the stated time each night. And so turn on the news or public radio, and in between advertisements for banks and wealth management firms, on newscasts you hear about violence and unrest and good guys and bad guys and several days of chaos. I always wanna ask, chaos for whom? And days? In this country founded on pillars of slavery and genocide and the subjugation of women, in this country that promises on its stamps to last forever, are we just talking about days of unrest? Now we have the most people unemployed since the Great Depression, people marching in the streets drawing comparisons to the 1960s, and a president threatening the Insurrection Act last invoked in 1992 to quell righteous indignation around the acquittal of four white officers who beat Rodney King, a precedent that resonates, but we hope will not be repeated. We have seen the National Guard fire on fellow citizens in Minnesota, and we have also seen the National Guard lay down their shields in Tennessee in response to the request of protesters. This is where we are as I am speaking. How do we talk about ethics in these times? So while a few weeks ago, I planned to talk about the terms official and unofficial used to frame COVID-19, I will also now talk about the terms that we're seeing to frame the response to the murder of George Floyd, the vocabulary of the present. How irresponsible it would be not to discuss this in a talk on ethics or maybe on anything else as if the public issues playing out in the streets don't touch on every single aspect of our lives. I will talk for about half an hour. 
we, and I'll use that word invitationally or simply to describe those of you watching this video. We can start with some questions. Questions I know many of us are posing these days. Why are some events officially declared a crisis and others casually deem business as usual? What is the normal to which so many desire to return? What constitutes an emergency today? What kind of protest is labeled extreme? What gets counted as violence? What form of security are we seeking in this time of anxiety? And how can we pray together, grieve together, mourn together in these times of distance? By considering the terms of the present and by providing examples across the Americas, my goal here is to offer a few points of connection across are taken as natural lines, nations, states, political memberships, and so on. I will continue in this vein raising questions throughout my presentation because I consider myself to have more questions than answers right now. But here is my thesis. I will argue that crisis is declared when domination is threatened, that emergency is the rule and not the exception, and that violence is the official name for actions that challenge the institutions of legal violence. Let me say that again. I will argue that crisis is declared when domination is threatened, that emergency is the rule and not the exception, and that violence is the official name for actions that challenge the institutions of legal violence. I also wanna bring in the voices of a number of other people into this discussion. For a few weeks now, I have been co-running a series with John Catlin about the pandemic called Sentencing the Present, Critical Conversations in a Time of Crisis. One of the topics of our discussion has been internationalism, as my title to this talk suggests. Learning from the human rights scholar Aicha Chibukchu, I have been interested by the ease, the fluidity with which the virus crosses national borders, at least as easily as we humans do. What does this mean? An example, like the country of which I am a citizen, the United States, Italy has recently featured nationalistic politics come for the ethnocentrism, stay for the historically inaccurate narrative of the nation. But we saw Italy recently welcoming a medical brigade from, among other places, Cuba. This is to say, a country's securing itself from COVID-19 is a contradiction in terms. It is only once we have achieved a planetary sense of security that we can feel safe again, or safe for the first time. So this is the first theme I will emphasize, internationalism. The second part of my title is lockdown. Instead of pandemic or virus, I maintain this term, even if it is the one favored by the right wing, to foreground the material realities of this crisis. The fact that so many remain incarcerated, the fact that people are scared and literally lock themselves into their houses. When I was drafting this presentation a few weeks ago, I included a note that reflected how right-wing extremists were the ones in the US leading protests about getting back to work. I was going to pose a question about whether protests and other demonstrations are also under lockdown for the remainder of the pandemic and about what might be more creative performative assemblies we would have to come up with. While my second theme is still lockdown, the protests responding to the murder of George Floyd have given this theme new power. So while I will make good on my promise in this talk, internationalism under lockdown, 
Given recent state violence, I want to think first about the language of emergency. When I published a short piece called Theses for Theory in a Time of Crisis at the end of March, John Bruce, a filmmaker and designer, emailed me. He said that in these times he had returned to the anthropologist Michael Tausig's book, The Nervous System. I had read some of Tausig, but not The Nervous System, so I checked it out. In that text, Tausig reads Walter Benjamin, specifically Benjamin's theses on the philosophy of history. Here's the epigraph of the nervous system taken from Benjamin's theses. The tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule. I'll repeat that. The tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule. For Benjamin, the question was one of attaining a conception of history in keeping with that insight. I would like to suggest that this is also one task of ethics today. Emergency is the rule. And what a connotation that word carries in its medical sense amidst the pandemic and how obvious we are seeing this teaching now with the National Guard in the streets. On Monday night, Donald Trump had police fire gas canisters and flash grenades at peaceful protests so that he could get a photo op at St. John's Church, about which a bishop said he did not pray. Let's go back a few years. I remember where I was when he was elected by an aristocratic electoral college, Atlanta, and how the next day, many of us walked around crushed, sort of like zombies, heads down, unclean after waking up so off kilter and not bothering to change the clothes we fell asleep in watching the results, or even to shave. The next day I was in a seminar with the philosopher George Yancey, who decided at the last minute to still have class because we might as well discuss what happened, might as well begin something like a resistance through education. I remember walking out of that class with Lauren Highsmith, an insightful theorist of literature and music and a musician herself. And as we left the building, we saw smoke rising from a field in the distance over Atlanta. We just looked at each other. As pressing as that omen was, and I'm sure we all have stories like that, what is critical is that we understand Trump as a continuation of the state of emergency and not an aberration upon oh so much progress. This is the key distinction for two different camps or responses that emerged after the 2016 elections. On the one hand, you had your liberal who works within structure, makes good money, votes Democrat, lives in Boston or Toronto, has a condo in Vail or Banff. They were shocked, absolutely shocked, somehow wondering how this could happen as if the election of such a president were out of step with a country guided by a pro-slavery constitution. On the other hand, you had your critical voices who were quick to point out, if often unheard, that what we were witnessing was not out of step, but in fact, in line. As Joy James puts it, given the 13th Amendment, the convict lease system, and the modern prison industrial complex, the United States has never known democracy severed from captivity. In other words, the second camp emphasized the continuation of a state of emergency in which, to put it one way, ethics are suspended to guarantee the perpetuation of domination. Early in the nervous system, Tausig asks, what does it take to understand our reality as a chronic state of emergency? 
And I ask, what if emergency is just the political term meaning the suspension of the ethical? Consider the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, EMAC. Signed into law under Bill Clinton, EMAC allows all 50 states to share resources and coordinate emergency personnel and forces. It is often used during natural disasters, such as Hurricane Sandy in 2012, but it has also been used during what we can underscore as social disasters, such as when Maryland's governor invoked it in 2015 to quell Black Lives Matter protests of the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody. And in turn, state troopers from Pennsylvania and New Jersey responded to the governor's call. Or when North Dakota's governor invoked EMAC to quell water protectors at Standing Rock in 2016, and police responded from 24 counties, 16 cities, and 10 states, adding force to an otherwise peaceful scene save the already present military landmine resistant vehicles, armed personnel, carriers, assault weapons, and drones surveilling nonviolent prayer camps. Also note how these examples are pre-crisis and note how both BLM and Standing Rock in their own ways are examples of internationalism under lockdown, connecting voices across indigenous land, the US, Canada, Puerto Rico, Palestine, and so on, notwithstanding the captivity, which always includes physical cells, cages, and locks that activists face and are facing. And so given these two approaches, the liberal claim to aberration and the radical claim to continuation, I want to suggest that the well-intentioned white liberal who thinks our institutions need simple tweaks or the professional classes who just want to get back to their life that looks like an American Express ad are today's white moderate about whom Martin Luther King said in the spring of 1963, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate, gravely, whom he goes on to describe as the great stumbling block in strides toward freedom, not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill King concludes in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So with King, I think today's moderates who think they can just go back to their same life goals, same career, same retirements accounts and credit card rewards points, their same social media clicktivism that never actually shows up and that implicitly suggests that only other people should have to have their body on the line. Their same daily consent to the absence of tension without a strong interrogation of the racism and colonialism of our most basic attachments, the clothes we wear, the food we eat, the vacations we think we deserve, our self-images and where we send our kids to school. Have a hell of a lot of work to do. And I don't just mean sympathy, what Louis Erdrich 
diagnosed perfectly in her novel, The Plague of Doves, as sentiment instead of justice. If we're listening, the point is structure, not sympathy or sentiment. As Calle Trece puts it in Adentro, when tyranny is law, revolution is order. With this context of histories of emergency in this country, and with this distinction between liberal and radical positions in mind, we can now return to the murder of George Floyd. Murder, that's not speculative or radical, that's the official position. The former police officer has been charged with second degree manslaughter and third degree murder, but the other three officers have not. And lawyers and activists contest that third degree charge as setting up the case so that the former officer will be acquitted. And so a special prosecutor from outside of Minnesota is being called for by figures, such as the former president of the Minneapolis chapter of the NAACP. So the governor of Minnesota declares a state of emergency, not in response to the violence of the police, of course, but in response to the response to that violence. Protesters respond and show that to some extent, we don't care about the distance or more precisely as they link arms on highways with strangers and milk jugs in hand in anticipation of tear gas, people think there is a more pressing pandemic than COVID-19, a more unjust lockdown than the one around COVID-19. There's simply more of them than us, Minnesota's governor conceded after protesters beat back barricades of state troopers. Then on Saturday, 30 May, Minnesota's governor mobilized the full force of the National Guard for the first time in state history. Echoing the recent constitutional crisis in Chile, curfews have been installed. We see video footage of the National Guard shooting paint canisters at people on their porches. Journalists being pepper sprayed, journalists being arrested. But we can also start to think about how these protests are changing the very terms of the lockdown. What it means to stand for something under lockdown, what it means to belong under lockdown. Some of the call and response chants of Black Lives Matter said while walking down public roads and taking back cities and highways. Tell them what a democracy looks like. This is what a democracy looks like. Tell them what a community looks like. This is what a community looks like. Tell them what a family looks like. This is what a family looks like. I'm from Minnesota. The cities, what Minnesotans call Minneapolis and St. Paul, is what I would call my home. The 21 bus I used to take from St. Paul across Lake Street to Uptown, that beautiful bus on which it is common to hear five or six languages is being detoured. The co-op I shopped at before I moved to St. Louis was looted. In response, the co-op director sent out a thoughtful email, ultimately in favor of the movement for justice and quoting Frederick Douglass. I'll repeat it here, quote, where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized conspiracy to oppress, rob and degrade them, neither persons nor property will be safe. In other words, there will be an overall lack of security, a word I'll return to in my conclusion. I have now introduced internationalism and lockdown and discussed the language of emergency. I want to make a few more connections. In the state of South Dakota in the US, 
two indigenous nations, the Cheyenne River Sioux and the Ogallala Sioux, installed checkpoints on roads leading to their reservations in early April. This was a measure to protect their people. As the Guardian reported, tourists and hunters are among the few non-essential travelers being turned away. Given indigenous politics in the Americas, it was also a statement of sovereignty. Indeed, on 8 May, South Dakota's governor sent letters to the nations whom she referred to as tribes, language I know given its implication around sovereignty, asking them, as she said on Twitter, quote, to immediately cease interfering with or regulating traffic on US and state highways and to remove all travel checkpoints, end quote. To repeat, US and state highways. So here we see questions of land and travel at play, ultimately, questions of sovereignty. She also claimed that tribes broke the law by not consulting the proper authorities before imposing restrictions on state and federal roads. The Intergovernmental Affairs Coordinator for the Cheyenne River Sioux commented, this is part of our holistic plan to make sure our members are protected because we didn't see a plan from the state. So we see a kind of internationalism. In a time of pandemic, without a plan, from the state, the Sioux take matters into their own hands to protect their people and their way of life. They are able to say no to tourists and hunters who could spread the virus. In doing so, they ensure other people are safer. The virus is less likely to spread. And by protecting their culture, they ensure some of the richness of this planet. Consider secondly, the Shukuru nation living within the borders of what most of us call Brazil. The Shukuru gained international prominence when in February 2018, they won a case in the American Court of Human Rights against the state of Brazil. The court ruled that Brazil violated several rights by failing to demarcate traditional territories, offer legal protection, or ensure swift legal proceedings. Demarcation of land, which was supposed to start in 1989, following 1988 constitutional changes, has material consequences in just how slowly it proceeded. The Shukuru faced constant threats by ranchers, criminalization by the state, and even the murder of their leader, Shukau Shukuru, in 1998. The investigation of his assassination was overseen by five federal police commissioners who reached no conclusions. As Kasike Marco Shukuru, Shukau's son, and now the leader of the people, put it, losses are irreparable language we're hearing echoed in Minneapolis today. Marcos himself was ambushed in 2003 but survived. In mid-May of this year, the Shukuru held their annual assembly. They noted that their struggle never ends, that they cannot vacillate, and that they need to come together in a time of collective reflection. They lamented the total lack of respect shown to indigenous people in Brazil under the current administration, and they commented on the court case, beautifully noting its promise was less in material changes, which are still very slow in coming, in coming, but more in opening something for other struggles in other places. Like the Sioux in the U.S. then, the Shukuru do not put their faith in a plan of their mendacious, historically violent state. They nevertheless make an appeal across borders, their actions to say something about international. I'm discussing these examples for a reason. For Black Lives Matter, for the Sioux, and for the Shukuru, the crisis did not begin in March. It is ongoing, and it is not just a crisis. As Nick Estes has written in his book on Standing Rock, our history is the future. A better term for these confrontations is war, a war between sovereign nations and a war against citizens. 
given our topic of internationalism. Here we can also compare these points to the 2011 report from Doctors Without Borders regarding state-sanctioned critical medical shortages in Gaza, crisis in Palestine long before the crisis. And so we can start to say something about crisis, about the operative terms of the present. Crisis is de officially declared when the lifestyles of the wealthy and powerful are threatened. But we already know that. Dara Strelovich has documented how the 2008 financial crisis was declared only once dominant people started suffering. In other words, structural inequalities are normalized as non-crises. This is such an important insight. Structural inequalities are normalized as non-crises and enforced by emergencies, we might add. So we have a definition of another term. Crisis is the official name for bad things that happened to dominant people. And this tells us about the term normal. Going back to normal simply means returning to normalized injustice, the pre-crisis conditions. I have to admit, I wonder not just what we owe each other now amidst a pandemic, but what we've always owed each other, what we've always owed as beings who make demands on one another and who can respond to those demands. To summarize up to this point, I have suggested Black Lives Matter, the Sioux and the Shukuru as leading examples of internationalism under lockdown. And I have brought these examples together to try to paint a picture of similar racialized state violence across the Americas. I have also tried to define with clear eyes terms such as crisis, normal, and emergency. To repeat my thesis, crisis is declared when domination is threatened, emergency is the rule and not the exception, Violence is the official name for actions that challenge the institutions of legal violence. And by institution, I don't just mean a policy or a courtroom. As Common says in Letter to the Free, institution ain't just a building, but a method of having black and brown bodies built. Before I close, let me address a final word, security. The historian Martin Jay has recently called for the left to reclaim security as an aspirational value. This term, admittedly, has to cut against the grain. President Truman introduced the national security state as a way to frame amplifying military power and investigative aims of the government. National security and homeland security are terms that ought to make us shudder given their association with xenophobia and in particular Islamophobia. But something like social security contains a promise. And that is a promise of healthcare if you fall sick, employment when you need work, food when you are hungry, voting rights when you want to raise your voice, a right to education so that you can find that voice, and so on. I have read that in the US, gun sales have increased during the pandemic. To me, that is evidence of how far a sense of security has run in this country, away from our necessary and inevitable interdependence. To repeat the internationalist position in a minor key, there is no immunity to this virus on national grounds. How quickly belied such a claim is by the actual travel of humans and other beings. This is why any sufficient and successful response to a pandemic has to be a public one. I will close with some questions. What would it mean to think about security as interdependence? Arundhati Roy says the pandemic is a portal a gateway between one world and the next. What if that gate weren't manned by guards, but maintained by guides? 
What if that gate weren't closed but open? What if that gate isn't on a national border, but is the name for a site of relation? Every time we go for a walk or step foot in the grocery store or show up to a march. What if the portal isn't something out there, but something that we make together each and every day? What if we pray in the streets? What if we mourn together in the streets? In 1906, W.E.B. Du Bois said, the color line belts the world. What if the most pressing pandemic isn't COVID-19, but racism? What if the most pressing lockdown isn't staying in our houses, but reiterations of slavery and continuations of colonialism under police states? Responses to all of which, to be sufficient, will need to be international. Thank you.